the people on the telephone with you when you phone to order from Zappos, if you have a question, are incredibly enduring in terms of what they'll talk about with you. In the, mm -hmm. And they'll stay on the, on the phone with you however long you need to talk in order to finish answering all your questions. And this is about that I wanted to get to, that one person stayed on the, 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 uh, uh, the, well, the prize or the all-time outstanding length of time that someone talked on the phone with someone about a shoe uh, transaction was five hours and 23 minutes. So somebody really wanted to talk about some particular shoe that was made somewhere that had some particular components that was, anyway, they talked five hours and 23 minutes. So I'm reading this and I'm thinking, I wonder if the shoe salesman ex woman excused herself to go to the toilet during those five hours. Or she just stayed constantly on the phone, but five hours and 23 minutes for that transaction to finish on Zappos. And you know, on the one hand, it's, it's sweet, and you, you, know, you all laughed about it, and I had it in my mind to tell you about it. But then I began to think about the things that we clutter our mind with. Like it's been five hours and 23 minutes talking about a pair of shoes on a telephone. You know, that, you know, there's other things in the day, you know, that what the mind could get cluttered with. I remember that um, in the last two days of teaching with Donald, he talked about clutter and uh, that when we sit, you see a lot of the clutter that comes up in the mind and the things that we clutter the mind with. Never mind shoes, but uh, old grudges, uh, unfulfilled yearnings. That person that I had that love affair with 33 years ago, and uh, I wish I'd followed through on that. Then my life would have been better. I wonder where that person is now. I wonder what they're doing. Really stuff that's not, you know, what we clutter our minds with, things we should have done or could have done or might have done or how things might be. And whether we do that out of a habit or because we are trained not to pay attention by the input of our incredibly stimulating culture, or whether we do it just because we don't want to see what's actually there in our minds and hearts, whether we do it as a, as a, uh, as a um, like defense mechanism, and we do it to avoid thinking about either our lives or about what's true about life, that something's going to happen to everybody. Are you recording? Uh, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'm giving a talk. I, admit. <laughs> I guess, too. I guess, too. Do you know these talks go all over the world? I get emails from New Zealand the next day or something telling me something about what I said, so I have to really think now that's on. That's all right. I mean it to be on and about the Zappos and about the clutter. Because I, I think that there's something about uh, choosing a lifestyle that supports seeing what's true and keeping that really in a focus so that, we, so that I make good judgments about what to do next and about what's important. Just as you said, Julie, about you know, the importance of friends, the importance of connections. I think in the end, um, the the uh, Buddha uh, standard Buddhist procedure is to take refuge in the Buddha and the possibility of an awakened mind in the Dharma, the possibility that there are 
really tried and true paths for allowing the mind to awaken to the truth and to the Sangha, which is a community of people that one feels connected to on one's life's path. And traditionally, in the time of the Buddha, it was the, the community of monks that uh, ordained and the disciples of the Buddha. But I think in our time, I think of my Sangha as being uh, this group, all the groups of people who support me in my life, my family groups, my, my, my colleagues here, this group. Um, because I think ultimately it's connections and uh, connections I'm on, at this moment I'm seeing two levels of connections. One of them is the connection of the people who actually are, are there to render the support, the people who drive you to the appointments and take you back and you know, sit with you when you make the phone call to see how was that, you know, how was the sonogram and what came out on the mammogram and the, you know, that level of connection. But also the connection of being with people who are willing to share their lives out loud uh, so as, as material for me to learn from. It's like, uh, uh, in case I forgot that life is very precious and every day of another possibility of living and making loving connections is a rare and amazing thing. If I come here once a week and have people say, my mother who is now demented or my sister who is sick or my friend who fell down or I realize we have precious little days and you never know, old or young, what will happen to you. And to learn my friend who has melanoma, who died from melanoma, who didn't know two weeks before, you know. We often think we'll have a little lead time. Uh, we, uh, what did we, we talked earlier this morning in the precepts group, we talked about what would we do if we had lead time, if we knew, that for, for specifically for people who kept a personal journal. And uh, how many people here keep a personal journal or have kept a journal? I have diaries from when I was 13 years old. Do you have them, Amara? People used to give me little diaries that had a little lock and a key, and, and I loved them. And, and I have them up in a closet, and I would always write January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and the middle of January it started trickling down not so much, and the handwriting would get bigger. But there are some very important truths in those journals. I see them every few years when I'm cleaning the top of a closet. And I find out things that I really have decided weren't true. Like I find out that I had very big fights with my mother when I was an adolescent. That's not a surprise, I suppose, to most parents of adolescents. But my mother died when she was a young woman and I was a young woman. And I completely don't remember ever having a fight with her. I decided not to remember that. But she's a wonderful woman, and you know, uh, she was really a wonderful woman. But like all adolescents, uh, you fight with your mother from time to time. Who knows even about what? But the mind selectively doesn't want to remember that. And I look back, very helpful when I see my, my you know, my, now my granddaughter is <laughs> doing similar things with their parents. I think, you know, this is one of the stages of life. You learn, so here Joe tells about her friend who discovered she was dying in two weeks, and I think, wow, 
What if I knew two weeks? First of all, I have to get all those diaries and put them really in some dumpster or throw them over the Golden Gate Bridge or <laughs> bury them. I told that to my husband. He said, don't you want people to you know, read them and know about you? I said, absolutely not. First of all, they're the same as everybody else's. You know, they're just Portia faces life. You know, they're a soap opera. This is not good. That's not good. I'm mad at this. Now we, uh, it's the same stuff. This hurts me. This worries me. Not much change over the years, except I would say what's changed with me is I'm more tolerant of myself by having the same stuff to deal with, and a little bit more forgiving of myself for having the same stuff that I didn't stop being peculiar about this or that or a little bossy or whatever it is. Uh, I'm a little bit more, more tolerant of it in me and in my friends and a little bit, uh, a little bit less, le less, I think, less self-important if I, if I, I think so. Because so. it's just like everybody else. I mean, it's just like everybody else. One way or another, the people change but, and you know, the events are a little bit different. But the feelings that we have, I'm grieved, I'm upset, I'm elated, I'm hopeful, that's everybody's got that. So I do, I do want to talk about uh, uh, the, what we had planned to talk about, about, about uh, uh, the bliss of blamelessness and precepts as a spiritual path. But I also wanted to, um, yeah, here we are. I also wanted to take a minute because I said before we sat that I hoped you would pay attention to what happened while you sat and what what kinds of things disturbed being in the present moment. Did you do that while you sat? Did you notice? Yes, people did that. So who wants to share about that? Hmm, I have a better idea since you can get a monumental show of hands, would you turn to the person next to you so that everybody gets to share? Take two people, okay, ready, set, go, and take two minutes each to tell each other what was your experience. If you're alone, find, make yourself a third in a group. Everybody's got a person? Our experience of diversion or? Yeah, what, what, what captivated your mind? If you don't have, here's a partner for you. Okay. What came and went? I feel some other part. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's make sure that the other person has a little chance to tell you. No, don't go back. Just make sure that the other person has a chance to tell you. Unless you already did that. Already did that? Everybody? You didn't do it. All right, one more minute. Talk fast.
I don't, I'm trying to think about how we could have some feedback about the sharing without a re-whole sharing. <laughs> what did you learn from listening to each other? Yeah. Freddie, yes. yes. Thank you very much for saying that. I also think it's very good for me to be able to talk with somebody else. And I, you all feel what Sherry feel, uh, Freddie feels, because then we'll do it more. We'll do it more. And I, I have to say, I, I don't like it. It's the, at first I said, oh no, but of course next to Michael, so it was wonderful. But <laughs> I'm not, even though I'm, um, it's, I go in it with my, and then I always come out, it's very, very wonderful. But going in, there's some anxiety, at least speaking for myself. Is that true for other people as well? Yes. Because I'll tell you a sweet story about my, my friend Martha, who's no longer in this world. Do you remember about, Martha was always, whichever remembers, as Mar and Martha and I were very close, she, would, she said, the minute you say, in a moment, look around and find a partner, I run out of the room. I go to the ladies' room. I do something for 10 minutes because I don't want to do that. Uh, then I come back. But I think most people discover, even if you feel oh, a little bit, uh, I, I, I think that's true. I'm not sure why. Maybe we're a little bit. It, maybe it's not a cultural thing particularly to share on uh, the, the, the workings of our, uh, the inner workings of our mind, but particularly, you know, how I, how when I'm trying to pay attention, I get distracted. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure why that would be embarrassing. Why is it embarrassing? 
I didn't find that embarrassing, but in general, I agree with, with Freddie. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, the, the concept is a bit embarrassing. Or, or I don't want to reveal myself. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm guessing. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I wonder if it's I don't want to reveal myself to you or I don't want to reveal myself to me. And I'll tell you why I'm saying that, because uh, I just finished, uh, I, uh, there was a retreat for teachers here a couple of weeks ago that I was part of. And one of the techniques, Hamid Ali, who's a Diamond Heart teacher, came and taught. And those anybody here studies with Hamid and Diamond Heart? There's a technique that, they, that he uses where he has, often he gives a certain teaching, and then he has people be, be in groups of two or in three. And in that group, you're supposed to, you're given a question, like say to the other person, what stands, what is the principal impediment to your uh, being able to stay present in the moment? You say that to somebody. And then that person, say it's me, has to say what I think the principal impediment is. And I say, 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 I'm finished. And they say, talk for five minutes, you talk for five minutes. You get all finished, and the person says to you, thank you very much. What is the principal impediment to your being able to stay present to your experience? And my mind at that point, I know that technique, it's a technique of encounter. My mind at that point has like a major snit. It thinks to myself, I just told you what's the principal thing. You know, you know, that, but but the, the rules of the game is you do it, you, you, you continue, you say, well, Principal impediment that uh, you finish a few minutes later, and the person says, "Thank you very much." What is the principal impediment to your being present in the moment? And what happens is ultimately you start to say some things that are really true about yourself that 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 surprise you. And you say, "Well, you know, I guess also, uh, you know." And in the end, it's nothing that's hugely. It never turns out to be something hugely embarrassing because, among other things, you're in within, you're amongst friends who care about you, who are going to be very interested and also going to feel liberated by your having been so honest because that allows them to be so honest. But it, I mean, I'm I'm sure everybody got it that 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 kind of technique. I think eek, here comes the brainwashing. But it is, and it is a, a technique of brainwashing. Where were you on the night of July 24th? And say, I was home watching television, you know, and a crime thing. And they'd say, okay, where were you on the night of July 24th? Now, over and over and over and over again. So finally, you say, eek, I was there, I did the crime, you know, that it, it, it just, because it, 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 it pushes down the defenses. But that, I mean, it's, it's the way it's supposed to work, you know, if you ask enough, you finally say out the truth. Without so, waterboarding? <laughs> so, uh, thank you very much, Freddie. Thanks. What else, Edie? Well, I was um, just in this conversation and also in our conversation. Talk um, loud. Talk loud. In, in this particular um, teasing out of uh, that we've just had about speaking, I, in in our dyad, I was also um, uh, interested in the third precept throughout my meditation. And as we, as we both were sharing, um, and then this question of being uncomfortable about the sharing, I was thinking that the, um, the amount of self-speaking that we do and the amount of self-judgment 
that pops up even before speaking, oh, I don't have anything to say, it's going to be boring, or I'm embarrassed about this, that that third precept is so um, pregnant with mm. all aspects of self-witnessing and witnessing the other person. So in this dyadic speaking, um, for me, it's a continual refinement of observing how accurately I'm speaking about myself, mm. self-witnessing, and trying to refine my ability to um, really hear what the other person says, and then be curious about how do I respond or not. Mm. And all of that, uh, all during the precepts, mm. I've been um, contemplating this, the third precept and mm. how woven it is with so the third precept, for those people who might not know, is the precept that says, I undertake the precept to um, abstain from harmful speech. <coughs> Sometimes you say it as to abstain from speech that is exploitive or abusive. Sometimes you say it, I undertake the precept to observe wise speech or right speech. And you know, and it's it's it is complicated. It is complicated. Sometimes people do that. They say the Buddha said to say what's truthful and helpful, but then that's altogether complicated. About first of all, what's truthful, and second of all, is it always helpful and helpful to? So what else did you discover? Thank you, Edie. What else, Julie? You mean without the... Right, well, there was a time, I thought, well, right now I'm incredibly distracted. So during my, during my meditation, I was, you know, and I was just trying to be gentle with myself and say, you know, maybe today it's not going to be my, med my best meditation day. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm happy that I'm here. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually think that, I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that up because I, I, it probably was your best meditation day, if there's a thing such as a best meditation day. Number one, you sat down and you stayed sitting, you know, and, and pretty quietly probably as we sat. And that your mind, and in the instructions about the meditator uh, observes the quality of their mind and observes my mind is peaceful or my mind is full of thoughts, my mind is restful or my mind is restless. You're observing my mind is full of thoughts and restless and planning and thinking. But the point of mindfulness is not to have a certain kind of mind, but to know what you've got. To know what you've got. And to, you know, and, and to be as you were, spacious with it. Not compound what you've got with an opinion about what you should have. Cutting some meditation and reading books and listening to other people, I realized where I am today, right now, is kind of yeah. yeah. What else? Yeah.
but for me it was about get that split attention mm-hmm. you know wondering what what to do about that what's your name Flora, what do you what what two sides do you recognize? Because the brain physiologists know that there are two sides. Right. What do you recognize? It wasn't until this meditation that I realized that there, I always have music going in my head, and it can be there when I'm trying to sleep, when I'm trying to do therapy, when I'm talking to a friend, when I'm meditating, and it feels like I'm not present all the way. And today I realized that that is coming from the right side. I can feel it coming from the right side, which is that mm-hmm. kind of, you know, side that's searching for patterns and mm-hmm. themes. And mm-hmm. when I tune into that music, the words are always important about what I'm experiencing. But I also experience that as a distraction. I'd like to be able to listen fully. Mm-hmm. And so doing therapy, <laughs> I would mm-hmm. like to be really, really present and not be distracted by this music. Hmm. I'm very touched by that sharing. Uh, every, anybody else have that same experience that there's something, you have the sense that there's always something that's preventing me from being? It's the music. I hear music sometimes too. And the lyrics are appropriate to what you're going through at that time. <laughs> not all the time, but I don't even know where these that's a you know I'm I'm very interested in that uh, so it's a message there's a message yeah. often there is yeah. Yeah. I wondered if you if if you wanted to keep track of them for a while and see what the messages were yeah 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 and you think they're relevant to what's going on yeah Maybe it's a prompt from your mind. You know, I, I think that I, I think that the way that my mind works, I think it's the way that everyone's mind works. You tell me if it's not. It's when there's something coming up to which I need to respond in some way, and I'm not sure what to do. Like in a therapeutic situation, you're listening to someone, and there's a there's a a, a part of you that is listening in order to hear the part to mirror back or say back, that you're looking for some kind of a prompt. My mind is maybe thinking, hmm, you know, what now? And maybe the music is a prompt to that, or maybe the music is your intuitive mind telling you something. Uh, I have friends who are therapists. It's not my way, but I'm interested in the fact that it's theirs, who will say to people, you know, while you were speaking, I just had an intuition that, something, something, or, you know, I don't, I, it's not so much my way to do that, but I've always been interested in the fact that they do, you know, and sometimes it's apparently helpful. All of you say that makes me aware when you say that, that it's not always my music that's playing, sometimes it's their music that's playing, sometimes that same part of the brain, I think, delivers that some metaphor or some image that I recognize as coming from being attuned to them. Uh-huh. And I do share it. And you do share it. You know, attuned is particularly the word that uh, Dan Siegel has been using 
recently Dan Siegel, who's a psychiatrist and a neurologist in uh, Los Angeles and a principal uh, um, experimenter with uh, mindfulness and psychotherapy. And he talks about the role of the therapist and in any kind of modality of therapy as attuning her or himself to the person that they're with in order to really be able to not so much understand them and figure out the right answer, but more, I think, or at least as much, to uh, be sure that the experience, uh, felt sense of experience of attunement is there based on the, the, the idea, which I, I really do believe, that what makes people feel better is not some idea that you have for them, but the fact that you're present with them and you really are paying attention to them. Like, uh, you know, I, I suppose one of the things that's particularly um, touching about wonderful um, art of uh, a parent with a child. I was in a, a friend's house the other day and I saw a painting of um, a mother and child type painting. It was a, a very uh, much a, uh, uh, it wasn't like a filled in painting, it was just outlined drawings, but you could see it was a mother looking down at an infant child. And you look at that picture and apart from the fact that I thought the, you know, the, the artwork itself was lovely, you get a good feeling looking at that because you intuit the feeling that the artist is trying to show you of the kind, I think, or at least that's my feeling. You look at a picture like that and you know what that feels like when someone is looking at you and really, really present for you as parents are often with, with, with newborns. If you have a photograph of a parent and a newborn, no one has ever seen somebody like that and you know that, or they, you, and the, even the eyes locked together. Uh, yeah, Linda. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about how wonderful it was to be here again. And for, for me, it was transformative. I can't have sat down and meditated, and it was so different meditating with the group than it is even by myself. I mean, it's almost like this numbness and sense of how warm and loving. And I think it goes to that attunement, that, every, that the feeling that I have that everybody is so loving that comes here and supported them. It's just an amazing feeling to mm -hmm. be here. And it happens every time I come. And I think it also comes from your always being attuned to not only myself, but everybody else when they're talking, it just is. <laughs> So you know what it, it's also true for me and you should know this that sometimes if you know because it's, it's not a particular thing that I do I bring the best I can but when I don't feel good and I come here um, having you look at me makes me better you know, so, I mean, it's all of us. We could change the chairs at any time, and we will. You know, we could just change the chairs. It's just by accident that I'm here. <laughs> it really is. I sometimes think to myself, how did this happen? 
Because it's not that, you know, it's not, we could change. Do you want to talk a little bit about the precepts and the relevance of virtue? I'm happy to talk about this some more. But I, I actually think that the precepts come out of that. And I, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to figure out this point in my mind. And you can help me figure it out. Why are you talking to each other? I wrote down this question. And I'm, I'm actually going to Seattle tomorrow to teach. I'm going to give a talk and a workshop about uh, how mindfulness leads to happiness. And I'm going to talk about the happiness of wisdom that when you really see how things are, you don't fight with them so much. You realize, uh, when Joe, when you were talking about your friend who got that news, I thought to myself, what an extraordinary and wise woman this was. I mean, I, I don't think she thought to herself, hmm, what should I do now? I have this, you know. I don't think she figured it out at the moment. But when you think about it, you get, a, you get a, 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 a news, like in two weeks you're not going to be alive anymore. Uh, it's an extraordinary grace to be able to lovingly say goodbye to your friends and do whatever final you know, shuffle of papers that you need to do to exit. And it makes it easier for you, and it makes it easier for your friends also. Um, what an extraordinary thing it is. And the wisdom, I think, that either you uh, you learn in your bones from having seen people around you do it like that. Not so many people have role models of people who did leaving this world wisely. Now, you know, I have a couple, uh, but we don't, we haven't historically because we have. I think this is an editorial opinion. It might be worthless, uh, <laughs> but I think in a, in a previous time, uh, to a hundred years ago, death was not a mistake. You know, people got sick and they died and you felt bad when they did, especially they were people that you loved and you know, connected to. But uh, it was a thing that people understood happened. And it's been uh, I, I, I something about um, modern times and modern medicine that has made somehow dying a mistake. Like you can fix everything. There was a period of time in the in the 60s when people were actually talking about living forever. And you could go to wellness doctors here in Marin County that would help you figure out a regimen from which you would live forever. And now it's 40 years later, and my friends and I who lived right, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's it's uh, it's a kind of a rueful irony. Uh, my friend, uh, my friend Tamara, who you all went through her death with me by supporting me through it. Tamara meditated. She taught meditation. She meditated. She went to the gym. She lived an exemplary life. She ate exactly right. She was skinny as anything. She took tons of supplements. I, we, we teased when we visited because, you know, I, I, it hasn't been a big thing in my life. And she had, honestly, a box that looked like fishing tackle with, with, with so many boxes in it. And these you do in the morning and these you do in lunch and in the afternoon and before you go to bed. She took so many supplements and all those things. She did everything possible. She doesn't have a family history of ovarian cancer. She lived completely right did all good works, and she got ovarian cancer and died, and young. 
So you, you don't know, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sixty-two. Uh, that was young, wasn't it? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you see where I am, you know. <laughs> Anybody younger than I is young, you know. And I don't actually feel that old, although I am really beginning to feel. I'm beginning to feel old, but not elderly. So I'll let you know when I get to be elderly. Maybe 80 will be elderly. But, the, but I think that because death has become such a thing that, uh, that it's not supposed to happen to you, like you made a mistake if you die, uh, particularly before, you, before 80 or something. Uh, yeah, Nancy. There's also, and I, I wish I could remember the exact word, but I think there's been a reverence for death that's been lost as well. Um, there was a quote that I came across recently that death used to be a profound experience and now it's regarded merely as the cessation of life functions. Yeah. Yeah. You all know that Nancy works with uh, pediatric oncology. So she sees dying children and families of dying children. There's a roomy line that says death comes as an enemy only to those who have forgotten to welcome it as a friend. Um, so here's the question that I'm thinking about. I'm going to Seattle, and I'm supposed to be talking about what makes us happy and how is it related to mindfulness. And I want to talk about mindfulness as uh, not only mindfulness meditation, but mindful living as the source of awareness about the truth of things, that everything that's born dies, and sometimes in a, in a, a, at a ripe, Time, sometimes before, things happen. And not that it's good or bad, it's just true that way. And that the ability to know that allows people to somehow manage loss better, not without sadness, not without sadness, uh, certainly not without sadness and uh, uh, tremendous pain about bereavement but really in the context of knowing these things happen. So I want to talk about mindfulness as leading to wisdom, but I also want to talk um, at leading to happiness, but I also want to talk about um, uh, ethical living, morality, precepts as leading to happiness. And I'm trying to figure out whether I would do it by saying, when I, when I, this, is, this is my conundrum, so you help me figure it out in the next 15 minutes because I'm, I have actually a little worry about figuring it out before tomorrow. I have a little note there that says, call Jack if you don't figure it out. Um, because uh, the, way that the, the way that Buddhism has been classically taught, uh, in, in Asia, the, the most practitioners of Buddhism think mostly about ethical living and living by precepts. And they revere the Buddha as an exemplar of uh, the perfection of virtue. And the, most of the stories that are told to children are stories of the Buddha in previous lifetimes when he perfected the virtue of generosity or of renunciation or of morality or of patience or of truthfulness, energy, loving kindness, equanimity, uh, determination, 
and I'm missing one, but okay. But uh, I had perfected, hmm? Joy is not one of the paramitas. Shucks. Shucks. Uh, but, uh, but however, the, the paramitas lead to a virtuous life and the bliss of blamelessness. But so in, in Asia, the, par the paramitas and virtue training is central to this is the way you live a happy life. And at some point, uh, it's said that the Buddha in the lifetime that he became enlightened was able to do that because he had perfected the virtues. So that there's a, they say, well, that's true, or it's, oh, there's a family of deer going by. That's true or not, maybe it's just a societal, anyway. It's also said that people who have an insight, the people with the beginning of an insight, who really have the insight into the connectedness of things, the first of the major insights, and in Theravada Buddhism it's called the first path, really understanding everything is connected to everything. It's said that such a person who's, had, who's achieved first path never again can break a precept. So I think, really? You know? Uh, I ask my friends about that also because, I mean, it's, it's always been a little bit uh, hard to understand who has really had that insight or not since it's a mental state, when you go to talk to your teacher, you say, this and this happened, and I thought that and that, and is that it? Have I achieved it? And when I, when I started my practice, 30 years ago, more, when I started to practice, everybody was trying to have it, like it was the supreme thing after which your life would be all right. And um, uh, one of my friends actually did his doctoral thesis on uh, in a in a Western university in psychology, by interviewing twenty adepts in uh, Asia and some in this country, who said, "Yes, I have achieved that first class insight," and they uh, and his doctoral thesis was asking them, "How are you different after it?" And it's kind of an open-ended thing, and the as best I remember it. Some of them said I was profoundly changed. Some of them I was said uh, nothing much happened. I just had it and it passed. Uh, so, and so what, what do we know from that? Nothing, really. Or maybe they didn't really have it. So what I'm trying to establish in my mind is how would the view of everything is interconnected really lead to unable to break a precept? I break precepts. I don't think now I'm going to hmm, break a precept. But, you know, uh, sometimes I say things that I rue later to people that I'm in close relationship with. Um, I, and I wish I didn't. Or sometimes I gossip and I wish I didn't. Um, in the middle of the gossiping, I might say, uh, Probably is gossip. Maybe we shouldn't do it. But I'll just finish because I started. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe now that I told you that, maybe I'll stop, which is maybe why I just did that, because I have to go to Seattle tomorrow and say. Uh, but why? So here's my thesis, but I'm not sure it holds water. So I'll test it out on you, and we'll see. There are two words in uh, Pali that are associated with impeccable behavior, and the words are hiri and otapa. 
and Hiri, me, and I'm actually not in this moment sure which one is which, but they translate as moral shame and moral dread. And moral dread has to do with the recognition, and it might have to do with that realizing interconnectedness, the recognition that everything that anything that anybody does has repercussions, makes makes repercussions. In the in the same way uh, that anything produces anything, any action produces something else. It's really an understanding of karma that a butterfly flapping its wings in the South Pacific is not the proximal cause of a typhoon uh, off Hawaii, but it might be one of the causes of the typhoon off Hawaii. Uh, and the fact that uh, your boat didn't turn over in that uh, typhoon, where you're usually a fisherman and you're out in a typhoon, would be that uh, the day before someone stole your boat or something like that. But that the things happen the way they do because of myriad interconnected causes, some of which you ha are connected with and some of which not. The fact that uh, one's children perhaps grow up healthy is because you give them vitamins and you take very good care of them and you feed them and you teach them wise habits about getting around in the world so uh, that they grow up as healthy adults. You are part of, a, a good part of the proximal karma of them growing up as healthy adults. Also, there are so many other karmic factors that they could have been on a train or a plane that was in an accident or something else could have happened about which you have no control. But everything that you do matters. Everything that you do matters. It's part of, even if you don't do something, it matters. Because I remember really realizing that at some point, deeply realizing it and thinking, oh, you know, you can't do anything because you don't know. I remember, this is too long of a story, but many of you will remember from long, long ago, uh, uh, I, I told the, the, the story of it. It happened to me that I was in Max's in Cormadera. And I went into the ladies' room, and there was a woman who took out a bun from the back of her hair. It was all tied up in a tight bun and shook her hair out. And it was beautiful. It was, looked like, and now she's not in this world anymore, it looked like Farrah Fawcett. Remember Farrah Fawcett and Charlie's Angels? She was so beautiful, and she had that great head of hair. And I have all my life had very thin hair, so I could never make hair like that in my life. And she pulled out this bun, just watched it looking in the mirror, and I was standing there, and she went like that, went out like that. And I said, wow, you have really beautiful hair. And she looked at me, and she said, well, if you want to know, I'm really unhappy. And she said, well, it makes you feel any better. I'm really unhappy. And she went out the door. And I thought to myself, ah. First of all, why would it make me feel any better to know that? Or, or, you, know, that uh, you know, I felt bad. Do I look like the kind of person that would feel better to know that her beautiful hair is offset by her being unhappy, or that I coveted her hair, or one thing or another? Anyway, it was it was a very interesting story. Who who heard that story before? Joe heard it because it's a million years ago that this happened. That story, and so I came back here and I talked about it and I told that story. And if you were here. Everybody got indignant. They said, she shouldn't have said that to you. That wasn't, you know, you didn't have a bad intent. Uh, then I, and I remember saying to uh, my friend Martha, who was with me at the time, maybe I should go over and 
apologize to that woman wherever she is for you know but but how do I know maybe she's very unhappy because that very moment the person she's sitting with broke off their 20-year relationship or that day she lost her job or whatever I already created a little havoc not to do more and then I, it went on and on in my mind about you what do you do when you see someone who has something do you not say anything because you never know what you're saying it to and I, I told my friend Jonathan, who said, and I remember it till now, he said, you know, you don't know, Sylvia. He said, three months from now, that woman might be standing in front of a mirror combing her hair and maybe not in the middle of such great despair and think to herself, you know, sometime back in Max's, somebody said to me, I have really beautiful hair. And, you know, I really do have nice hair. And it might be a moment in which that picks up her spirit three months later, you don't know. So you put stuff out in the world and <laughs> with you know good intent, and you hope for the best. But the, 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 the idea of not doing, I could have not do it, you could do it. Here in Otapa is everything that you do has a, a, a sequelae. And Otapa, I'm not sure really which one comes first, is you're not sure of what the sequelae will be. And you might even think they're going to be good, but they might not be. You might say, oh, it's a great thing to go um, helicopter skiing, but then there could be some uh, avalanche or something, and then you would be the cause of, but you don't know. So that everything that, moral shame and moral dread is everything that you do or no, don't do causes is a is part of the karma of the unfolding world and anything might cause pain and suffering and you don't know what and my understanding of that the best I can do is that if I understand that if I don't feel paralyzed with I have to think over everything and become completely unspontaneous if I think about it is that if I am pretty careful that my mind and heart is in a good place, then I can go about the world hoping that as if it's in a good place and I am motivated by goodwill, that I'll be motivated by goodwill and it might sometimes fall out in a way that, I, that causes pain, but it wasn't my intent. In the karma teaching, it says if you roll over in bed and roll over on an insect and kill it, there's no karma on that because there's no intention. Um, if you kill it by stomping it out, there's uh, intention. Um, you know what? I'm going to change the story because I know the tape is on. Someone told me, someone announced to the group that I was teaching with last week that some very major... Uh, revered figure said uh, the precept about not killing has to do with everything that's a sentient being except mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody laughed about that, but then I thought, really? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know. And the truth is, if I do like that on mosquitoes. I have an allergy to them, and I swell all up, and I do like that right away. 
And I, so I felt better about <laughs> that I do that with mosquitoes. Um, but maybe I shouldn't. Uh, you know, I, what, I, what I'm really trying to somehow figure out is what does a deep understanding of the preciousness of our, there is Jack, sweetheart. Just in time. Honestly, three minutes ago. Come up here, would you please? Honestly, three minutes ago, I said the following. This is my friend Jack Cornfield, in case you don't know. Three minutes ago, I said, here's my conundrum. We're talking about um, precepts as the cause of happiness, right? And I said, uh, I said, I've been thinking about one particular thing. I have to go to Seattle tomorrow, talk in a conference. And I'm, I'm, I have this one conundrum that I can't figure out. And uh, I said, if I can't figure it out with you, and I just was trying to do that, I'm going to call my friend Jack, and he'll tell me the answer. <laughs> I wrote, uh, anyway, uh, I, I, I was saying, I was saying that uh, uh, about the practice of precepts that it is said that anyone who achieves the insight that comes with first path, whatever that is, is unable to break a precept. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> so first... Many things are sad. <laughs> so, okay. So first I stumbled on trying to explain what exactly uh, was the insight of first path, because to explain the, uh, let alone the experience of, but the inside of, which I, I really take to be the inside of no separate self and the interconnectedness of all things, however it manifests as a, an experience in the mind. So, uh, and that I know a lot of people who are pretty clear about that, but I'm not so sure about the not breaking a precept. So you're on. <laughs> um, I will quote one of my venerable teachers, Anagarika Manindra, who stayed with you. He was a teacher in, uh, of, in, who lived in India was Joseph Goldstein's primary teacher, Sharon Salzberg. And when I asked about it, he said, well, it seems more that when one has that deep realization, um, one, cannot do, one cannot break precepts in a major way. It just feels so wrong. But even in minor ways, if one does, one knows one is breaking precepts. <laughs> <laughs> that seemed to fit closer to my <laughs> Actually, How's that? that's good. <laughs> that's good. No, that's good because then. And it was the Dalai Lama who talked about the mosquito, by the way. I know I was covering it up I'm because because it's be nice. it's no because this is getting taped and somebody in, in Australia is going to hear that he said he, that tomorrow. But I think he, if I remember, <laughs> if, if I you know I'm not I'm not certain, but I, people were asking him about you, you know forgiving your enemy and what do you do with people who've tortured people and so forth and he talks so much about what it means to have loving kindness even for the for the enemy. He said. Mm, Maybe mosquitoes are the real enemy. <laughs> so it was in a context. Uh, it was in a context. Now, because really, uh, just to finish this, I know that everybody has to leave, but it's such a rare thing to have Jack, so stay a minute. Because this thing that, the, the point that you just made about you couldn't break a precept without having awareness of it, yeah. if not at the moment, later on, yeah. some remorse. Hirian Otapa, yes. That's, I was still talking about Hirian Otapa, okay. So... Uh, and when we, we, some of us came at 8 o'clock this morning and sat the first hour and took precepts. And the way that we take precepts 
is we say one of them and then we sit for five minutes, we say another one and then we sit. And the mind brings up those ways. And I'm talking about the, the, what seems to me the really beautiful thing about human beings is that they have a moral inventory scanner that keeps track even if the conscious mind doesn't keep track. Now, what I have been personally thinking about a lot is I don't think everybody has a moral inventory scanner. And when is it installed? How is it installed? How much of it is a neurological impairment? What would you like to say? I used to think, because it was sweet to say so, that all human beings had that, but I'm being careful about saying that. Mm. What do you think about so, that? Um, I'll, I'll talk about that, um, but I want to go back to your previous point a little bit. Um, in the Buddhist monasteries of Asia, every time you go to the temple, pretty much, you take the precepts again, and the monks and nuns have a, a ceremony every new moon and quarter moon which they retake their precepts, so they're 227 or 337 vows, because it's assumed that you do the best you can, you sit quietly, you do a moral inventory, and then it's time to take them again because you need them. So they're not considered a, a kind of moral... Uh, uh, outline of sin, their practice, their training. Mm -hmm. So, um, of course, one takes them again because one, you, you, you sit quiet and, and that moral inventory comes, okay, this one I could have done better. Mm -hmm. um, I believe it's innate in us that there are, however, both neurological conditions in some few people, and more than that, there's tremendous trauma mm -hmm. in many, many, many other people um, that rewires the nervous system because the nervous system and the brain are, are reflective of what happens to us and with tremendous trauma when you've been terribly traumatized and haven't had a way to heal you then naturally cycle through and re perpetuate that trauma so a woman I know who who had been abused sexually abused as a child um, grew up became a psychologist worked in that field helped other women who had been abused and then decided to work with perpetrators and she worked in a prison in New Mexico, and she, she started a group, and it was all men. Um, and at first she was terrified. That's partly why she did it, to try to understand. And after not very long, she came back with the insight that everyone in that circle, when she heard their stories, had been abused. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and she began to realize it. Or someone I know who works in the maximum security women's prison in upstate New York said that 95% or almost every woman that's in there for committing some kind of crime such as killing their husband or whatever, um, every woman in there had been abused in some terrible way prior to having uh, any action that you know would have put them in prison. Mm. So there are, there are terrible conditions, and they can condition our, our, our psyche, our mm -hmm. trauma, our nervous system, mm -hmm. or the way that we live. But underneath, when you go in San Quentin now and work, or in that prison, um, most often you can touch that place in a person mm -hmm. in the right conditions, and it can be reawakened. Mm -hmm. Not always, but mm -hmm. very, very often. Mm. So I'm mm. going on, and you, you know. No, 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 it's good. Earlier today, in in this discussion, just as you were saying this, just to put a a, a, a thing, depends on conditions. I was talking about um, 
having seen a work of art and visiting a friend, seeing a new painting, there was just kind of an outline painting of, uh, uh, I think, a Navajo woman with her child. And you look at the picture, and she's looking at this child, and you look at the picture, and like a great feeling comes up in you because you, you, you grok, I think, the feeling between the nurturing parent the and the child, the attunement that happens. Right, in that nurturing. In that, yeah. the, and we talk specifically about attunement. When you're talking about children who have been traumatized, they have not been attuned to the feelings of others. And then that and moral the inventory. Yeah. So a friend of mine, Gina Ross, who does trauma work, you know Gina, I think, who does trauma work with Peter Levine's network of somatic experiences, very skillful trauma work. She works in Israel and Palestine, and the main training that she does is to train, um, uh, is to help journalists release trauma and train them how to do that. Because if you witness a suicide bombing or a, or a killing or all the kind of things that are happening in Palestinian-Israeli conflict, it traumatizes you. Mm -hmm. And if you witness it a couple times, you become hair-trigger traumatized. Mm -hmm. And then each time something happens and you go to write about it, mm -hmm. instead of being able to see it with an open heart, with some possibility of light at the end of the tunnel, your trauma gets activated. Mm -hmm. So if the, if the voice and the images that we see of what's happening is run through the, the, the trauma of our journalists, mm -hmm. It actually cycles in the entire culture and the entire society. So it's both children and adults. And the best thing is that it's never too late to stop that cycle. That, you know, at 88 years old, you can still learn to release things that you've carried for your whole life, and you can still become free. Whoopee! Whoopee, right. So there's something to hope ahead, right? What is that guy's name? A man, Gina Ross. The person who works in Israel and Palestine? Yeah. So listen, thank you very much for sharing. It was really, you came three minutes after I said, five minutes after I said, if I can't figure this out, <laughs> I'm calling Jack. So um, we didn't figure it out, but we're all in the same No, but we have something. No, 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 no. I have, I have something good to say tomorrow when I go. So listen, uh, uh, I, I don't remember if I'm here next week. I don't think so. I think Donald is back. Donald is back for a couple of weeks. And I'll be back after that. So, uh, Julie, I hope things go well. With um, uh, So if we sit now for... Uh, Julie has been new, newly diagnosed with breast cancer. She's in the middle of all the tests that, um, mm -hmm. that are going to determine what happens next. So we'll sit for half a minute and maybe uh, dedicate the merit of the practice today to your health and well-being. And and for all beings everywhere that need special support in these days. May they have that support and the resources that they need. May this be a world of shared support and shared resources.